thank you for listening. My name is Ho Jun Yoon, and this is Medicine on the Way. When the night has come and the land is dark, it is July 2013, and today's topic is acute idiopathic polyneuropathy, or known as Guillain-Barré syndrome. Acute idiopathic polyneuropathy, or known as Guillain-Barré syndrome, is an acute polyreticulineuropathy. Many cases of Guillain-Barré syndrome have occurred one to three weeks after respiratory or gastrointestinal infection, especially Campylobacter jejuni enteritis. It has been reported with the swine influenza vaccine in 1976 in the U.S. Older type of rabies vaccine, which is still being used in developing countries, and preceding human herpes virus infection. The exact mechanism of Guillain-Barré syndrome is still unknown. However, there is one postulated pathophysiology of the disease. Glycoconjugates on Campylobacter jejuni is shown as antigen to T cells and B cells that are located in Peyer's patches. Of the small intestines. As a reminder, Peyer's patches are just lymphoid nodules in the small intestines. Antibodies against the antigens are produced by the activated B cells, and for some reason, the activated B cells escape Peyer's patches of the small intestine, migrate to lymph nodes, and to blood circulation. The activated B cells in the lymphatic system and blood circulation. Keep producing the antibodies. These antibodies then travel across blood-brain barrier and the peripheral nerves or ganglia. The antibodies produce because of the antigen from the Campylobacter jejuni in the small intestines, and they are now attacking to something called gangliosides on nervous tissues. Because both the antigens of Campylobacter jejuni And gangliosides on nerves tissues have similar molecular structure. The antibodies are attacking both the antigens and nervous tissues. There are many subtypes of Guillain-Barré syndrome. The subtypes are categorized based on slight differences in pathology. The most common subtype is acute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. In this subtype. Myelin of nervous tissue is damaged, as the name says. As long as the axon or the nerve fiber remains intact, recovery occurs with remyelination. In another subtype called acute motor sensory axonal neuropathy, not only there is demyelination but also secondary axonal damage. Because of the damage to the axon. Recovery tends to be slower, and there are residual nerve deficits. As the name says, there are both motor and sensory deficits. The third subtype occurs when there is axonal damage, but it, it involves only motor nerve fibers, not sensory fibers. This subtype is called acute motor axonal neuropathy subtype. The acute motor axonal neuropathy subtype is interesting because recovery is relatively faster than other subtypes. 
This may be because the damage usually occurs in preterminal motor branches. Also, reinnervation from surviving collateral motor axon occurs, which quickens the recovery. Lastly, there is Miller-Fisher syndrome. This subtype presents with rapidly progressing ataxia and areflexia without weakness of extremities. Ophthalmoplasia develops in this subtype. There is a special type of gangliocyte in the extraocular nerves called GQ1B. And as a reminder, gangliocyte is glycoconjugate just like the antigens of Campylobacter jejuni. Antibodies now attack this ganglio, uh, gangliocyte GQ1B in the extraocular nerves and as a result ophthalmoplagia occurs. Remember the triad of Miller-Fisher syndrome. They are ataxia, areflexia, and ophthalmoplagia. Signs and symptoms of Guillain-Barré syndrome depend on the subtypes as just described. The typical presentation of Guillain-Barré syndrome is a rapidly evolving motor paralysis with areflexia with or without sensory disturbance. The main motor nerve deficit is weakness with symmetric distribution beginning in the legs, then to the arms, and to either one or both sides of the face. Sensory symptoms include neuropathic or radicular pain, dysesthesia, and distal paresthesias. Autonomic disturbances are common and they can be fatal. They are dysrhythmia, tachycardia, hyper or hypotension, impaired sphincter control, abnormal sweating, and facial flushing. The cerebral spinal fluid typically shows a high protein level without other causes that would increase the cell count. There is a term to describe the increased cell count in CSF and that is pleocytosis. In other words, in Guillain-Barré syndrome, CSF has a high protein concentration without other causes of pleocytosis. However, this increased level of protein may not be shown for the first 48 hours from the onset. Sometimes it may take two to three weeks to see the elevated protein levels in CSF. Pathologic exam reveals demyelination with or without axonal de degeneration. Electrophysiologic studies can be ordered to demonstrate any nerve abnormalities. However, these studies may not correlate with the clinical course of Guillain-Barré syndrome. Guillain-Barré syndrome is diagnosed clinically. Like I just said, findings of CSF analysis, electrophysiologic studies, and pathologic exam can be late or not useful to diagnose Guillain-Barré syndrome. These studies are ordered just to rule out other differential diagnoses that have similar clinical features. And these differentials include botulism, polymyelitis, metal or organophosphate intoxication, or Lyme polyradiculitis. Treatment should be initiated without waiting for the result of the studies 
if Guillain-Barre syndrome is strongly suspected. Plasmapheresis is the treatment of choice. It works best within the first few days of the onset. The effectiveness of plasmapheresis is shown with improving recovery and decreased need for mechanical ventilation. IVIG is equally effective with less stress on the cardiovascular system than plasmapheresis. Because of the less side effects, IVIG can be used as the initial treatment as well. It is known to be effective especially for acute motor axonal neuropathy subtype and Miller-Fisher syndrome. Prednisone is not effective and it can even prolong recovery. So prednisone is not recommended. When the patient presents with respiratory symptoms such as dyspnea, decreasing oxygen saturation level, the forced vital capacity above 15 milliliter per kilogram, or the mean inspiratory force of negative 40 millimeter mercury, then the patient has to be admitted to ICU. Any significant improvement occurs usually to the end of the first week of treatment. Absence of significant improvement is not a reason to try an alternative treatment. Relapse may happen a month after the recovery. Retreatment with whichever drug the patient received can be tried. Most patients eventually shows good prognosis and this may take months. About 20% may show residual disability. Okay, that is it for this episode and I thank you for listening.